Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bernia. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I have with Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has his MDiv and his PhD, uh, both of those uh, from Princeton Seminary. Um, He is also an expert on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity. He has served as president of the Southeast Region of the Society of Biblical Literature and chair of the New Testament textual criticism section of that society. He's been the associate editor for the Journal of Early Christian Studies, uh, book review editor at Journal of Biblical Literature, and also been the editor for the series The New Testament and the Greek Fathers, and currently serves as the co-editor of the series The New Testament Tools, Studies, and Documents, co-editor-in-chief for the International Journal of Early Christian Studies, and editor for the Encyclopedia of Ancient History. Um, He has received the uh, Bowman and Gordon Gray Award for Excellence in Teaching, Religious Liberty Award for the American Humanist Association, and he is the author of numerous books, uh, some of which you may know. Uh, Six of them have been New York Times bestsellers, such as Misquoting Jesus, God's Problem, Jesus Interrupted, Forged, How Jesus Became God, and many other books. He has a new book out called Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. And that's what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about why people are obsessed with the end times and some of the wild things that are talked about in the book of Revelation in the Bible. We talk about the role of interpretation, where that fits here. We talk about the various views of the tribulation as detailed in the book of Revelation. We talk about the rapture, where the idea came from. We talk about the importance of genre in the Bible. We talk about the historical view of Revelation, which is his view. It's also my own view. We talk about some of the negative messaging of Revelation, um, how it's been used, uh, and and really what are what can people get from accurately from the the book of Revelation? And uh, it's it's not as as positive as people may 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 think it to be. Uh, I have wanted to talk to Bart for a long time, um, and I was not disappointed. He is he is a wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, obviously quite brilliant. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with him, I haven't talked too much about my personal story on the podcast. I might at some point, but you know, I was a fundamentalist. I was evangelical Christian for um, much of my life, um, and sort of my close to my mid twenties, I I went from theist to atheist. Um, and so we have a similar background in some ways, obviously he's much, uh, much older, much wiser than myself, but, um, we both went to, uh, pretty reformed seminaries or in, in schools where we were trained, uh, biblical interpretation, um, and, uh, really kind of, uh, walked the life that one's supposed to. And after much, much, much study found that there's too many inconsistencies and, um, we, we commiserate over some of that. And, uh, while we, we, he's still in this world and has done marvelous work. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I went on to clinical psych. So, but, um, huge, 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 uh, respect for the scholarly work and, and research that's put into people that study ancient texts in general and, and including the Bible. And so, um, Bart continues to do that work, um, from a really, really good vantage point. Um, and so he's, his, his books are always wonderful. I greatly enjoy the new one. 
Um, and it was, it was an absolute blast to, to talk with him uh, about, about this book. As always, you can uh, find this conversation and all other conversations at my free Substack, convergendialogues.substack.com. Uh, go ahead and subscribe over there. You don't miss an episode. You can hear this one and all the other ones I got coming out. And uh, now I bring you Bart Ehrman. I'm here with uh, Bart Ehrman. Bart, uh, thanks so much for for coming on. It's a real privilege. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Well, you have a a new book out. Um, So for folks that don't know who you are, just tell us who you are, just kind of your brief uh, background and what you you currently study and uh, why you wrote uh, the new book, Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end. Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor of uh, New Testament and early Christianity uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I've been here since 1988, <laughs> and I taught four years before that at Rutgers. I've been, I've been teaching the New Testament for a long time. I, I have a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary in New Testament, and I write uh, I write books uh, for um, uh, for scholars on various things, but I also write books for general audiences. And this book is uh, mainly about the uh, book of Revelation. And how uh, how historical scholars have have understood the book uh, over the years? Yeah, no, that's that's great. It's a it's a it's a it's a fascinating book in the Bible. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll lay a, a few of my cards here on the table. So so we have a so, sort of similar stories. So I um I was raised a evangelical Christian for a while. I was a fundamentalist, if you will, for much of my life, and uh, I went to. Seminary. I went to uh, Capital Bible Seminary, uh, colloquially known as Dallas on the East Coast, is what it's been called at certain points. I think it's uh, still around, um, but I was trained as a, you know, um, I, I was doing basically a dual program of sorts, and um, but did all the exegesis and the Greek and Hebrew and all that. And uh, in that process, I had a three-year exodus from theist to atheist, <laughs> and I went pretty militant for a while, and then I. Uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more balanced. I can see the utility that this has for some folks, but uh, on the on the doctrine and the ideas, I'm uh, I'm uh, definitely not a believer. <laughs> but that said, as you know, um, there's something really unique and special about studying um, scripture and studying ancient texts in general. Um, it's quite a unique way of of, of looking at uh, things, and so that's what I I really appreciate about all of your books is you have a pretty critical and uh, really, really broad view of things and not really with a kind of religious overture. Uh, maybe at one point in your life you did. Um, so uh, it should, should be a lot of fun to kind of go back into that world a little bit. Uh, I haven't uh, I haven't done too much of it here on the podcast because I just did so much of it for <laughs> much of my life, you know, 23, 24 years of my life. So it will be it will be really, really fun. Um yeah, I, I mean, we, we have a similar background, as you know. I'm not sure your listeners will know, but I, I also come out of a fundamentalist background and went to Moody Bible Institute, mm-hmm. where yeah. where they tried to supply professors to Dallas Theological Seminary. And I I too moved away from the faith, and uh, yeah. so my scholarship is not you know in that in that read obviously it's it's um it's historical scholarship that is meant to uh try and understand things from a literary and a historical perspective rather than from a, a fundamentalist christian perspective mm-hmm. yeah i think that that's super important i mean obviously these are these are ancient texts they have a lot of value they have a lot of meaning and i think understanding them historically 
Uh, and yeah, as you're saying, from a literary perspective, I think is, is super essential. It's essential for anthropology, for civilization, for 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 many things of of how we understand um, you know us as humans on the on the planet. So I think it's it's still really really relevant. Um, so in the Bible, so I mean, a lot of people will have read the Bible if they're Christians or even if they're just kind of a you know uh, Easter and Christmas kind of uh, a person. You know, um, people are familiar with some things, and some people know that there's a book at the end, the last book uh, called Revelation. Uh, I don't know if this is one of your pet peeves. This always is one of mine. Where people put the S at the end. Oh my God. No, no, no. No, If you grew up in fundamentalist circles, this is like the worst. This is a heresy. (laughs) It is not revelations. (laughs) It's one revelation. One revelation. Um, So yeah, it's always, it's still is kind of like, oh yeah. (laughs) So there's this last book. And again, that's not the only uh, book in the Bible that's um, apocalyptic in some ways. Obviously, you mentioned Daniel, Ezekiel in the Old Testament has elements of uh, of uh, apocalyptic kind of genre, but Revelation is, is the kind of the apocalypse. And so, what do you think it is that has, even for folks that are just kind of cultural or you know just kind of your nominal Christian, that people have this strange obsession with Revelation and the apocalypse and the end of the world and the end of times. Why do you think people, even if they're casual reading of of Revelation of the Bible, they they kind of latch on to to some of this stuff? What well, what do you think yeah. it is about that for folks? Well, it's it, you know it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book because mo- the the reality is that most Christians who are not in fundamentalist circles avoid it like the plague, <laughs> the book yeah. of Revelation. They they start reading, they say, "Oh my God, I don't know about this," and they and they don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It just seems really kind of strange. And one of the most common questions I get from people is. How'd that get into the New Testament? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the people who do read it, of course, are people who have uh, been told by someone else what it means. Mm-hmm. And if you if you have a really mysterious book in front of you, you can't figure out for the life of you. But then somebody tells you what it means, then that's what it means. Mm-hmm. And the people who are doing that are the people who think that it's predicting what's going to happen in our near future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the way of reading the book of Revelation for, well, since the 19th century. It wasn't the way Revelation was read through most of Christian history, or the vast majority of Christian history. It was not read as a blueprint for the future. But it has become the way that that uh, fundamentalists and then, and then evangelical Christians uh, read the book. So much so that for most readers, it's just common sense Mm -hmm. that it's talking about what's going to happen soon and uh, that the prophecies are now being fulfilled. And this is a view that scholars have long known is simply not the correct or or the right way or a good way to read the book of Revelation. It is not a prediction of our future. And so part of my book is trying to show why that is, why, in fact, it's not not predicting what's soon to happen. Yeah, I think that's that's super important. I guess uh, just maybe a footnote on this. We don't have to obviously get into the hermeneutics of this, but obviously there are various within evangelical uh, circles, within uh, even more uh, types of uh, liberal folks that study the Bible, various interpretations of Revelation, many, many interpretations. And so obviously many people will say many things and say, you know, Bart, you know, that's your view, right? You know, the Bible uh-huh. isn't just a history book, right? It's scripture, right? It's holy yeah. scripture. You know, yeah. this has a lot of, you know, it's a it's a living document. It's, you know, it's kind of this mm-hmm. ongoing revelation of sorts. You know, what do what do we say just about these various interpretations that go about and, you know, how how do we kind of say like, you know, here's what we can know. Here's what's just interpretive. Here's what we know is, you know, these are people's ideas about what the text says. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the right question. And, um, you know, when I teach my classes, I try to teach them um, both my graduate and my undergraduate classes. I teach them that uh, interpretation means a lot of different things. And um, when you're reading a book, for an ancient book, you know, a book of the Bible, for example, you can read it for devotional reasons. Um, if you are personally committed to the Bible as a book of scripture, you can read it to see what God is telling you. Um, that's, you know, and I have no qualms about that for believers. So that's, sure. that's, that's fine. That's normally how you'd read scripture, but you can also read it, um, as a book, <laughs> the way you read books. Uh, and even if you think God inspired it, uh, he inspired a book. He didn't inspire uh, a Ouija board or a, uh, fortune telling, you know, he, uh, he didn't, or, or a jigsaw puzzle. A lot of people treat it like a jigsaw puzzle that you have the, the Bible, you've got this hint of the end here and this hint over there. And so you put together Ezekiel 28 with Matthew 24 and you add in revelation chapter six. And then, you, and it's like, you can assemble the pieces into something that isn't there and isn't there until you assemble it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't, I, my view of it is that even when I was a Christian, even, not when I was a fundamentalist, but when I later as a Christian, as a more liberal Christian, I thought, you know, if God inspired a book, it probably means he wants you to read it like a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way you read a book is you start on, you know, page one and you start at the beginning and you read it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And then you read it a few more times. And then that way you can start to understand what the author's saying. To understand what an author means um, is a matter of trying to understand the language. It helps if you can read it in the original language. Not just the Bible. I mean, it, but it helps to read Revelation in Greek, mm-hmm. just like it helps to read Dostoevsky in Russian. I mean, it's, it it helps. You can right. see it different. But also, if if uh, if it's a book that was written at a certain time in a certain place by a certain person in a certain situation, you're not going to understand it if you just assume he's he's writing, you know, in uh, 21st century North Carolina. He's not. And so his assumptions about the world and his beliefs and his understandings and his and his context and historical and political situation, they're all different. And so to understand what somebody means in their context, you've got to understand their context. Otherwise, you're taking him out of context. And anytime you take something out of context, it's not good. And so it's true that there are lots of interpretations of Revelation. But I will say that historical scholars who work on this, whether they're Christian or not, um, uh, historical scholars have basic agreement about what this book is about. And, uh, and it ain't, it ain't about what's going to happen next October. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> well, I, look, all that tracks with me and that's, that's my basic take as well. It was, it was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine about this and we were talking about it and, and, uh, and the historical approach is, is basically you know, kind of my view as well, which you kind of take, again, as you're kind of proving your point, right, that most people will kind of see it this way. And yet, and yet, we have so many people over at least 50 years in the modern era, maybe before that too, where people were taking Revelation with the, you know, front page of the New York Times or the LA Times or the Washington Post or whatever, to predict things, what's going to happen. And you talk about it a lot in the book, uh, and there are some names that people may be familiar. So you have, you know, Hal Lindsey and you have Jack Van Impey and John Hagee, I think who's still around, Tim LaHaye with the Left Behind series. And look, I read all this stuff when I was, you know, fundamentalist and I was, you know, going to church all the time and all that. And <clears throat> very popular in evangelical circles. Why 
okay, so I guess the first thing I want to ask about this is this 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 is sort of a its own type of industry within the evangelical circles, but then I think just a little bit more largely with with some of these books. I mean, they became bestsellers, and people were reading them, predicting the rapture is going to happen. You know, on on October twentieth, nineteen seventy, whatever, whatever, and people were really buying into this. How much of this was a fraud, right? And how much, like, meaning that how much did they really know it wasn't true? They were just trying to make a buck. Or did some of these folks really believe it? And the cast and crew that were with them and all their associations really believe it as well. You know, how much of that was there? And and uh, and just kind of talk, talk about how big of a thing that was, how profitable it was, even yeah. until, yeah. you know, the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me begin by saying the fact that millions of people read it this way is not an argument that they're reading it um, correctly. Yeah, you know, the people who read it that way also know that there are millions of people who read the horoscope every morning and think <laughs> it really predicts their future. Right. And so the fact that it, you know, that, and so one has to, if you want to make an argument that horoscopes really are not predicting your future, then you, you, you just try to make an argument for why that's probably not the best, you know, <laughs> the best way to know what's going to happen to you today. Mm-hmm. And if people don't accept the argument, they don't. But, you know, usually if people are thinking, they're going to realize what a good argument is and what a bad argument is. So what I do in my book is try to show why this idea of where the idea came from that revelation is predicting the future. Mm -hmm. Because if you know where an idea came from, it helps you understand what the idea is. Um, And it's not been the idea for most of Christian history with devout Christians holding that, which is worth knowing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just, you know, it's kind of a fairly new way of doing it. Uh, but then you have to see what what's the evidence that's predicting the future versus not. And so I give a, I, I show why scholars don't buy this as to whether the people who say that it is the sometimes they're called uh, prophecy writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they they're using Revelation along with other books of the Bible to predict what will be happening soon, usually. And you're right. It's because of the front page newspaper and whatever's happening at the time mm-hmm. shows that the end is near. Um uh, and so uh, in the 1940s, it was it was Nazi Germany or it was Mussolini um, during the Cold War it was the Soviet Union. Uh, more recently, it's been, uh, you know, instability in the Middle East, the Iraq war or and now it's the invasion of Ukraine. And so at every point you have people writing books and saying, oh, this is it. This is it. This is it. And you have people guaranteeing, oh, yeah, everybody before me got it wrong. But this time, <laughs> I've got it right. You know, because and so, uh, is there fraud going on? I don't know. I mean, I doubt it. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't think these people. There probably are people who are trying to make money off of it, because people try to make money off of everything. But I, I don't know that any of these people are like that. I think they generally believe it. You know, they 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 think God has revealed this to them, and they need to get the word out. But you would think. Um, that at some point they'd realize they got it wrong. And Hal Lindsey, you know, when uh, I don't know if your your audience knows this, they might. But in the 1970s, the best selling book in English, a nonfiction book in English, was The Late Great Planet Earth. Oh yeah, next to the Bible, mm-hmm. it was the best selling book in the English language, and the Left Behind series dwarfed it oh, in yeah. the sales. So that when people, there's been interesting anthropological studies of uh, of the Left Behind series and its effect on people, and a lot of church people will still say, well, you know, it's not really a fiction; it's just describing what's going to happen. From that's what Revelation says. 
most of them have never read Revelation, but they're just pretty sure that's what it says. Wow. So I don't know that there's fraud. Uh, there, there is a lot of money in it. And the thing, how Lindsay predicted it was going to come at the end of the 80s in late great planet Earth. And when it didn't happen, he kept his TV show and he kept writing more books. And he's still, he's still going at it. Mm. Now, this is 40 years after it was supposed to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway. It's it's interesting how how much people really buy into it and and yeah I think there is probably a, a you know a sociological perspective there that's saying what is it that's so appealing I mean obviously there's there's a lot of it that is I think there's that I, I want to you know be respectful I mean I think people really obviously that they believe you know in 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 Judeo Christian values and the Bible and things like that you know it is a kind of explanatory way of sorts but it it does sort of feel like like a like a treasure hunt, right? Kind of like you were saying, like the puzzles put together, right? Like there's seven seven seals and seven trumpets, and here's the thing. I mean, it is a it's a you know, Revelation is a kind of a wild book in some ways, and so there, it feels, I think, with some of these prophecy writers, that it kind of you, know, you lean into a little bit of the sensationalism piece of it. It is a it can be a very entertaining or exciting kind of book to kind of say, oh my goodness, wow, and so it's 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 really interesting. So one of these things. These concepts, you know, I remember it's, this took me a while to 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 not believe it. There's something so I don't. I again, I want to be respectful, but there's like a like a science fiction element to this. Is the rapture? I remember when I was you know uh, uh, growing up in 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 seminary. I mean, that was absolutely like the core belief. I mean, it was yeah. you believed in it. Like you wouldn't yeah. believe what all those other people, just the second coming and no rapture. No, 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 no. Like you got to okay. get the rapture first. Yeah. It's definitely there. So maybe just, just give us the overview. I mean, some people have known about it, but just, you know, what is the rapture? What is, and why do people believe it uh, so strongly? Where does it come from? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing is that in fundamentalist circles, the rapture is a very big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's never mentioned in the book of Revelation. The word rapture never occurs in the Bible. And the uh, c- the concept actually is not in the Bible either. So so what happens is people are told it's there and they read a passage that says, there it is. <laughs> but especially in Revelation, it is not there. So the rapture is um, the rapture is the idea that there's going to be a future period of tribulation on Earth, a really horrible period of suffering uh, that in fundamentalist circles is usually put at seven years. There'll be a seven year period of tribulation. And there will come a point at which Jesus returns from heaven to take his followers out of the world. Usually, in the original understanding of the rapture that started in the 19th century, um, the idea was that um, Jesus would come before that tribulation so that people wouldn't have to experience, his followers wouldn't have to experience, it would be for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Eventually, there were some uh, fundamentalist theologians who said, uh, no, it's not going to come before the tribulation. Christians will go through the tribulation, but they'll be taken out after the tribulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you ended up with a what was called a pre-tribulation rapture idea and then a post-tribulation rapture idea. And then other people decided to split the difference and came up with a mid-tribulation mm-hmm. rapture, so three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time uh, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, I heard um, Jack Van Empey one of these people you mentioned, uh, give a speech and that he was, he said that he was so post, he was so, he was so pre-trib. He's so much in, he's so much in favor of the pre-tribulation rapture. He was so pre-trib, he wouldn't eat post-toasties. 
<laughs> Which is good. He, he had a sense of humor about it. <laughs> He's quite the charismatic figure. I got to give him credit. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think if you were to ask a lot of people that would still kind of believe this, I, if I recall, it's in the New Testament, and I think it's in Thessalonians, maybe other place, but. It comes from the Greek, if I'm mistaken, the rapturo, where which means to be caught up in with him or whatever. Is this kind of the, the well rapture? Duration? The word means, yeah, the word means um, the. It's a Latin. It comes from a Latin word, Latin word "raptio," which which is translating a Greek word that means to be snatched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, um, and it's it the passage that people refer the most common passage people refer to is first thessalonians uh chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 this is this passage so within the context of the book first thessalonians paul's writing this letter to some of his recent converts that he is uh in in thessalonica which is modern day greece and he he's their concern he's found out that they're upset because he had told them that jesus is coming back very soon in judgment and that jesus was going to bring his glorious kingdom and that because they're followers of jesus they would enter into this glorious kingdom and that this is going to happen soon and the problem is that some people in the community have died in the meantime and the thessalonian christians are upset because they think these people who've died have lost out on on the kingdom so they're they've lost out in the glory to come because they died and it's coming to people who are alive and so they paul's found out that they've got a problem with this and so first thessalonians is his way of trying to explain that you know don't don't worry about it jesus is coming soon but and then in this passage he says just comfort comfort be comforted because the people who have died are fine when when jesus returns from heaven the dead in christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left to remain, will go and meet him in the air, and we'll, then we'll be with him forever. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like the rapture. There you have it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except when you actually read it in its when in its own literary context, because when you keep reading, you know, when when we read the Bible, we often stop at the end of a chapter because we're done with that chapter now, <laughs> which makes sense, of course. And that's often how you read a book. You stop at some point, stop at the end of the chapter. The problem is when Paul wrote this, he wasn't putting chapter numbers on it, you know, or verse numbers. That Those are added later. If you just keep reading right after he says this, he points out that when Jesus comes back, he's bringing destruction. He's not pay, taking people out of the destruction he's going to bring the destruction and so what 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 are people doing meeting him up in the air well this is one of those things that um that historical scholars have known for a long time the kind of language that he uses here in the greek is uh is the language that was typically used when uh you were describing what happened when a king came to visit a city like the king's on his, you know, he's going around, traveling around his kingdom and, and he's got a schedule and he's going to show up at our city and it's going to happen next Thursday. And uh, so what you do is you prepare for it. And when he, when he, when you see the entourage coming, you send the elders of the town out to meet him and to bring him back in on the red carpet, so to say. And so you go and meet the coming king to bring him back, to welcome him to your city. So what is happening in this passage is that the Christians are the welcoming committee. 
Right. They're going up to Jesus. To, they're not going to stay. They're not staying floating up in the air. <laughs> they're coming. They're coming back, and Jesus is coming with them. He's going to destroy all the enemy, and and these the Christians who are there then are going to be given the kingdom, mm-hmm. and so that's what's going on. It's not a rapture, mm-hmm. and you can tell that just by reading the path, reading the whole thing <laughs> instead of just reading a few verses of it. What, what's which you know all of that tracks and that makes sense, but you know I can't tell you how many hours I spent you know in seminary arguing about this. You know yeah. what people were saying and people people argue about this for centuries about what what this is and no it's it means this and well did you read this you know it's in this you know data voice here in the Greek you know whatever right you know people argue about all these things yeah. and and you know is it's 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 you know exactly how you spelled it out I think where like okay in a historical context this is what would make sense. And yet, you know, you have this whole doctrine that's derived from it. You know, we don't have to get into all the the, the details of it. You you kind of mentioned it though. There's there's basically these interesting points where it comes from 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 Revelation, but you have this like tribulation period, seven years, and then there's a a, a thousand year uh, reign of Christ when he comes back onto the earth and he reigns for a thousand years on the earth. Now, some people will say is that a literal thousand or is that a figurative, you know, whatever. Sometimes it's an endless one. There's all these different views. And it's interesting because people will have these camps. You could be a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, you could be mid or post, you know, all these things, a millennial. And it's very interesting how you have all these doctrines, all these theories and all this stuff from Revelation. Um, but for some it's not quite that way. And so you give a different view of this, right? So I, I, I want to get into um, uh, a little bit of, of Revelation itself, but just give us the kind of overview of your view, kind of this, you know, historical approach um, that it, why it's not necessarily an allegory, uh, but it's not necessarily literal. You give this kind of historical vantage point. Can, can you kind of just lay that out for yeah. us? Yeah. I mean, let me say one thing is that you have, you know, the fact that you've got different interpretations of a text doesn't mean that they're all on an equal playing field. Mm. Um, so um, virtually every text that exists is interpreted differently. Um, and people need to decide what strikes them as the most plausible interpretation based on how people, you know, make their case. Yeah. So the fact somebody says this or that or the other thing, you just have to look. I mean, when somebody says that the um that the rapture is in the book of revelation just look for their arguments and and see does that does that really make sense <laughs> mm-hmm. and then listen to the other argument and think does that really make sense and so you you're trying to you have to weigh and balance things because the yeah. problem is these texts do not interpret themselves mm-hmm. it takes humans to interpret them and some interpretations make just make better sense mm-hmm. i mean for one thing where does the seven year tribulation come in the book of revelation it never says anything about seven years, but that's what people say. Oh, yeah, this is about the seven-year trouble. Well, okay, show me the passage where it says seven years. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, actually, I got that from a different book. Okay, well, what makes you think that this author's thinking of seven years then? Well, it just must be, <laughs> because I because you are. <laughs> and so, um, so the approach that historical scholars take, um, mine is different from the theological view that you and I had when we were fundamentalists, where we were debating pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial. We had all these arguments, and and they were based on certain kinds of premises um, that historians, as a rule, um, historians have different premises. Historians think that you read an ancient book— the, like the book of Revelation, the way you would read other books uh, from the time. And one thing that historians know that most people don't, including prophecy writers, is that the book of Revelation 
um, seems weird to everybody today because we just don't have anything like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the closest thing is what you said before. The closest thing would be like a science fiction novel or something. But but people don't want to think of this as like science fiction novel. And so this and since it's so weird, we tend to think this is a one of a kind. And, you know, this has to be inspired by God because who could come up with this? Oh, my God. And so and so you think that and you think, you know, so you just, you know, you're kind of on your own trying to figure out the symbolism because you got nothing to compare it to. Mm -hmm. And the reason people feel that way reading Revelation is because they don't know that there are, in fact, a number of books like this written at the time. In the ancient world, there are Jewish and Christian apocalypses like the the Revelation of John, um, and it's a genre of literature. So the important thing, one of the important things I introduce in my book is this idea of a genre. So in today, you know, you read different kinds of writing differently because you know how this kind of writing works. And and you have certain assumptions, the author has certain assumptions, and you have certain assumptions about what this kind of writing does. And so, for example, if you read it, if you read a, a if you're reading about a, a biological experiment that's gone badly in uh, outside of New York City and bacteria have gotten out of the laboratory and has um, has gotten into the water supply of, of New York City and it's going to be disastrous and millions of people are going to die. If you're reading that in a science fiction novel. Well, you pretty much know where it's going to go. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, OK, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I know where this is going. If you read it on the front page of The New York Times. You have a very different reaction because you know that, okay, this is that genre. This is this other genre. And so if you know what the genre is, Mm -hmm. you you don't, you know, so when you read a limerick poem, you're not reading it like, you know, like a factual biography or something. It's you read every genre differently. Mm -hmm. If you know how the apocalypse genre works, Mm -hmm. then you can understand the book of Revelation better because you're not just treating it like a one off. You're treating it, you're seeing how this genre works, and this is how John, John's using the genre. Yeah, and so let me, let me, let me jump in here and, and explain this maybe for, for listeners. <clears throat> the Bible, and, and I know you've written about this you know, previously, so, uh, you know, about <clears throat> how the Bible came to be and canonization, all that. Um, but one thing about the Bible is that it's 66 books over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years put together. And one of the things is, is that it has different genres within the Bible, right? You have, and within each genre, you have sort of different contours and rules that are kind of there. So narrative uh, is a different genre in the Bible as opposed to, you know, historical, poetic, you know, prophetic, uh, apocalyptic, uh, and epistle story. And as as you're saying, Revelation is part of a, an apocalyptic uh, uh, genre, which has its own dimensions, right? Of, of what we're going to, the dimensions in an uh, apocalyptic genre are going to be different from something like the Psalms, right? Yeah. Or, or from exactly. uh, one of the prophetic books, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, you know, um, we mentioned Ezekiel, but there's other different types, you yeah. know, such as from Hosea or something like that. So I guess, um, what is it about the apocalyptic genre generally um, and then where does Revelation, I guess, fit into that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and I, we should both emphasize that, you know, 
when when we put when you talk about genres like this, this isn't like a crazy liberal idea. <laughs> this isn't like you know something atheists came up with. This is this is just standard. standard even, right. even in evangelical circles, they'll say, "Yeah, when you're reading the Psalms, you've got to realize you're dealing with metaphor here, yeah. and you're not dealing with straightforward narrative. And if you don't treat images as images and metaphors as metaphors, mm-hmm. then you're completely misunderstanding something." Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yeah, so it's very important to understand genre. And so the apocalypse genre, uh, we have a number of apocalypses from um, outside the Bible written from about the second century before Jesus, about 200 years before Jesus to about, well, it goes on for three or four centuries after Jesus. Um, but and it's not a kind of genre that many people write uh, today. Sometimes you'll have people try it, but, but basically there, there was a way of doing it mm-hmm. and the way that an author would do it, he would, would um, it, it would involve his expectations of what the reader is going to take out of it <laughs> because mm-hmm. he's expecting the reader understands the genre. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so it's just like, you know, if you're reading a Shakespeare sonnet, you've got to know how a sonnet works. You're just not going to understand it. Right. So, the apocalypse genre, uh, we have Jewish and Christian examples of it, but they, they typically are a, they're typically pseudonymous. Typically what happens is somebody claims to be a famous person. Um, and so you'll have, we have apocalypses written by Jewish folk who are, who claim to be Enoch, you know, the person who was taken up without dying, or you have an apocalypse written by Abraham or apocalypse written by Moses. We have an apocalypse that allegedly was written by Adam <laughs> as in Adam and Eve. <laughs> you know, so you're like, yeah. And so they're, cl- they're claiming to be somebody famous because if you're somebody famous, who else is going to be shown the secrets of the universe? These things are about the secrets of the universe that get revealed to a seer. One thing that makes the book Revelation exceptional is the guy tells us his name. He says his name is John, mm-hmm. and he doesn't say which John he is. Uh, it's a very common name. Yeah. And so it doesn't seem to be pseudonymous. He's just saying his name is John. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, but he's known to his audience because he addresses Christians that he knows in chapters two and three. So, in any event, typically an apocalypse is a vision that is shown or a series of visions that are shown to a prophetic seer, normally pseudonymous. These visions that he has, they're wild with images and symbolism and wild animals and bizarre events. And uh, some of these some of these apocalypses are uh, visions that the prophet has of the heavenly realm. The prophet goes up to heaven and he sees these amazing, weird things. And these things help you understand what's going on on earth in the sense that in this understanding of things, the earth is kind of a pale reflection of heaven. And so if you understand what's happening in heaven, you can understand what's happening on earth. The other kind of apocalypse is the prophet has a vision of events that are going to happen in the future, symbolic images of future events. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes the prophet has uh, a vision that's a mixture. He goes up to heaven and he sees symbolic things of future events. So there's sometimes a combination. So he sees these things. They're filled with wild symbolism. They're not meant to be um, taken as uh, the beasts and wild people that you see aren't meant to be taken literally. They're, they're symbolic of something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing I'll say about these apocalypses is they usually involve horrible things happening on Earth that are explained in a way that shows that in the end, they're going to be made OK. The God in the end is going to triumph. These things are, are revelations or revealings of God is ultimately sovereign 
even if it doesn't look like it now. So how with with those kind of dimensions and of uh, the genre of the apocalypse, how does a historical viewpoint or approach fit overlaid in uh, with an you know, apocalypse genre? Why wouldn't you just use it as a type of, you know, uh, a narrative genre or, you know, or a straight historical genre? What what how do we read uh, all of those aspects of the apocalypse in, as a genre with a historical uh, yeah. place? Most uh, so these apocalypses that are written, you are usually able to figure out if you if you pay attention to the clues that the author himself gives you, you're usually able to figure out what the time period is that he's writing in, and what the real issue that he's addressing is, uh, and the symbolism will tell you that. You don't have to go elsewhere. You don't have to make stuff up. the The author will will tell you what the situation is. And so let me, I'll explain how it works just with the book of Revelation. You could do this as well with uh, a Jewish book, Second Baruch, or Fourth Ezra, or, you know, there are other, you can do this. And scholars who have devoted their lives to studying these other books, just as they, some have devoted their lives to studying Revelation. Within Revelation, you get these strange images uh, and figures, and sometimes it is, um, excuse me. I want to get the text so I can uh, quote this exactly. Uh, sometimes it's crystal clear uh, to an attentive reader what the author is uh, is talking about. And so one of my favorite passages is in uh, chapter 17. And uh, so the, uh, the author, John, is taken out and he sees this uh, great harlot a a prostitute who's seated on many waters and there are many kings of the earth that have committed fornication with her and with the wine of their fornication uh the d- dwellers of earth have become drunk you know what is this and it turns out she's seated she she's seated on a beast that has seven horns i mean seven heads and 10 horns and she's she's decked out in glorious raiment and she has gold and silver and jewels and pearls. And she has a gold cup in her hand that is filled with uh, abominations and, uh, and impurities of her fornication. And she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Mm -hmm. And she has a name written on her head, Babylon, the great. John looks at this and says, what in the world is that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, so in these apocalypses, almost always, you've got some angel standing by to tell you what it is. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Very convenient. And so you got to listen to what the angel says, because the angel knows. And in this case, um, the angel impacts it, gives you the hint you need to know. He says that the, um, that the seven heads are the hills that the woman is seated on. She's seated on seven hills. And it ends by saying that she is the, uh, in in case you don't know what that is, uh, he says that the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, so this is being written in the first century in the Roman Empire. What city has dominion over the world at the time, a city built on seven hills. <laughs> this is like a no-brainer. It has to this be Rome, like, yeah. Anybody in the ancient world knows this is talking about Rome. It's drunk with the blood of martyrs because Rome has martyred Christians under the emperor Nero. And the name she has on her head, Babylon the Great, 
She's being called Babylon because Babylon in the Old Testament is the city that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. And so the enemy here, and she's decked out in all this glorious clothing because they're exploiting, economically exploiting the rest of the world, and Rome is filthy rich. And so, and so it all adds up when you see the clues. And so this is this is not talking about somebody who's going to show up, you know, in in 10 months in someplace in Europe. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is talking about John's own context. His enemy is the city of Rome. Why 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 say it that way? Why say it with this, you know, why use this genre and use these images yeah. and all these things? Why not just say it that way? Just say, look, yeah. Rome sucks. They're oppressing us, you know, yeah. and, and here's all these things. They're, they're, they're taking advantage and exploiting us. Why not just say it that way? Yeah. Well, some people did. And John, John certainly could have. The apocalypse was a nice way of doing it and an interesting way of doing it. The reason it's done this way for John is not the reason most people say. What most people say is that John's doing this because he's trying to mask his message because he doesn't want to get persecuted anymore. And that's not true. <laughs> um, any any Roman who bothered to read this thing would have no problem knowing who this woman is representing. <laughs> so with great city sitting on seven hills. So this is not hiding a thing. The reason he's using this this wild symbolism and the reason Apocalypse has used this wild symbolism is because the basic idea of the genre is that the seer is being shown things that are beyond human imagination, that are so weird and bizarre that they're they're called apocalypses. The word apocalypse Apocalypse means a revealing or an unveiling or a disclosure. And what it is, is disclosing the heavenly secrets that make sense of the terrible earthly realities. And secretive knowledge is mystical. It's not straightforward. It's not a straightforward narrative. And so you have the, all of these apocalypses are filled with this kind of wild symbolism. And the key to these apocalypses is looking for the clues that the author himself gives to unpack it. And in this case, it's perfectly clear. Is there a type in, in, in looking at it this way, you know, it, it doesn't seem like there's a quite a, a, a linear kind of timeline in revelation mm-hmm. like you know mm-hmm. maybe elements of it are you know yeah. this happens and then this happens and then this yeah. happens but in other moments it's not quite that way yeah. so many people will say you know they'll read the first you know two or three chapters and be like oh it's a little strange but nothing too wild is you know there's these letters to the seven churches and you know okay and there's some stuff there and you get the throne room scene and, you know, four and five. and But really six is where it starts getting real amped up. This is where we really get the, the the images, right? And you get, you know, Revelation 6 to, you know, 9 or 10. And then you got 12 and, and 17 and 18. You know, there's 22 chapters in, in Revelation. And so, you know, by, by the time you get past 18 and you're at 20, 21 and 22, you know, we, we can come to that in a minute. But just kind of talk about, I guess, the kind of structure outline of how Revelation yeah. is, and yeah. you can throw in any of these scenes that you want that are illustrative. Yeah. But yeah, talk about that. Uh, no, it's um, I, one of the things I emphasize in my book is that people really don't need to be afraid of Revelation, the Book of Revelation. The structure, if if you 
if somebody will explain to you the structure, uh, who's actually kind of studied the book and see how it's, it isn't very complicated. It is set up as a linear thing, but it cannot be, it cannot be interpreted in a linear fashion because Mm -hmm. it would just be massively Mm -hmm. self-contradictory. So I'll say something about that in a minute, in a second. The way it basically works is John is taken up in chapter four into, into heaven. And he has a vision of the throne of God with God seated on the throne. And God is holding a scroll in his hand that is sealed with seven seals. Like back when I was in junior high, people used to take wax and seal envelopes. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that. And so to break the seal, you have to be either equal to the person in status to the person who sealed it or the person they sent it to. And so there's nobody to break the seals. And John realizes that there is somebody who can break the seals in heaven and it's the lamb who was slain. So this is an image of Christ. Christ is given the scroll and he starts breaking these seven seals. And every time he, bre- every time he breaks a seal, a major disaster hits the earth. Mm-hmm. There's war and there's famine and there's economic collapse and there's like death. And then, and all these things happen. Boom, 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 boom. And then finally he breaks, breaks the sixth seal and the, the, the moon turns to blood and the sun goes dark and the stars fall to the sky and the sky rolls up and you think, oh my God, it's the end of the universe, right? Wrong. You're still in chapter six. (laughs) You get 16 more chapters of this. And so what happens is he breaks the seventh seal and there's a silence, but then you're introduced to seven angels with trumpets. They each blow a trumpet, disaster, 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 disaster. Seventh one blows his trumpet. There's a silence. And then you're introduced to seven angels with bowls of God's wrath that pour out on the earth, seven bowls of God's wrath. Finally, at the end of this thing, you get the battle of Armageddon Mm -hmm. where the, uh, where the enemy of God is lined up and they have this battle. And then the ending with the, um, with the coming of the, uh, of the city of God from heaven for the, for the saints who follow Jesus. And so it is lit, it's set up in a linear way, but it can't be understood in a linear way because the world ends in chapter six. And so what's happening is this is one of those one of those things that happens in apocalypse genres is that sometimes it's not a, in not meant to be taken in a linear fashion, but it kind of repeats itself over and over again for emphasis. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're done with like chapter 18, you get the point. It's going to be hell on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and so it's, it's uh, so yeah, it's for emphasis rather than to do it chronologically. Yeah. Just another small footnote here. Uh, we talked about, about uh, the, 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 uh, pseudonym that you use and stuff, but this person says it's John. Most people, if they read it, they'll say, oh, well, there's the gospel of John. There's a first, second, and third John. So, and then this, this guy here says that he's John. This must be the apostle, uh, uh, the, the, excuse me, one of the, one of the disciples, excuse me, of, of Jesus, John, right? That has to be him. Uh, this same guy, he just, he just got a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of work thrown at him to write all these books in the Bible. And so that's actually not, well, I think in all of those cases, I don't think it's an actual John, from the, the disciple of Jesus, uh, I believe so. Uh, how do we understand for Revelation, you know, who are ideas of authorship, I guess? So again, just small footnote here on this. Yeah, well, it's, it's an important point, actually, because we call the Gospel of John, John, mm-hmm. and the Gospel of John doesn't claim to be written by somebody named John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Book of Revelation does claim to be written by somebody named John. We don't call it John. <laughs> we call mm-hmm. it Revelation. Mm-hmm. So, um in the ancient world already, there were debates about whether it was the same author. Uh, 
We have a very fine piece of scholarship written um, in the third century by a bishop of Alexandria who shows that the Gospel of John was not written by the same person who wrote the book of Revelation. He shows it on literary Greek stylistic grounds, Mm -hmm. and he's right. It's not written by the same person. First, second, and third John also don't claim to be written by that person. And so so it seems to be a different person, and his views are very, very different from the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's important to know. I guess one thing here, you talked about some of these prophecy writers, and you know, I think that that could be, you know, that it's it's captivating and, and, and interesting. But sometimes people will take, you know, some of the stuff in Revelation or, or some of the stuff even in, in Ezekiel or Daniel in the Old Testament and kind of go a little bit too far with it. You mentioned in the book in one of the chapters about uh, certain modern day, you know, cults, if you will. So the, the big one that many people will be familiar with is, you know, Koresh and everything that happened there, you know, um, just talk about maybe, I guess, impact of predicting world events and, and, and kind of having actions or, or behaviors behind it, not just writing some books or some, you know, a, a, a fun, you know, fiction series or something like that. No, like people are having like their own ideas put in and they have a following of people and they're on a compound somewhere. And I mean, what's the kind of impact? And again, that's not, prevalent i don't think and you know we don't see that all the time every day but it is you know has some risk to it no i mean what what is what do we make about some of the impact here you know so about half of my book actually is on the impacts so about half is on how historians interpret revelation as opposed to the way prophecy writers would interpret mm-hmm. it but the other half is about why it matters mm-hmm. and um that kind of thing isn't it's not prevalent, but it, it does it does happen a lot. Yeah, and yeah. happen. And in my book, I try to explain how this interpretation of Revelation has done such damage to people, um, emotional trauma, uh, but sometimes um, slaughter. Yeah. Uh, and I and I end up talking about how this interpretation of Revelation has affected U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. in ways you wouldn't expect, oh, yeah. and affected uh, uh, social policy on climate change and environmental protection and thing. And so it, it is demonstrably, uh, it demonstrates an effect. And people don't, you know, when you and I'll remember uh, the David Koresh thing, because we were, you know, we were around when this thing was happening and it was really quite astounding. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later that it came out that um, mo- most of the news coverage was bad and mistaken. Um, Koresh did not claim to be God. He didn't claim to be Jesus. He did claim that he was the person who was uh, the fulfillment of the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. and that he was a Messiah. He wasn't Jesus the Messiah. He was the final Messiah, mm-hmm. and that his prediction, that he was predicted in Revelation. And I have a section in my book where I try to show wh- how he interpreted Revelation in order to show that the martyrdom of his community, when the FBI ended up uh, raiding the compound and killing 50 people that, that Koresh thought that was going to happen. That is, it was a fulfillment of one of the seven seals mm-hmm. uh, of revelation. And so, you know, it was a misinterpretation of revelation that led sense to senseless death, mm-hmm. uh, not just of Koresh, but of, you know, people in his compound, including women and children and, and people. And so, um, yeah, so it it does it does have that effect, and it's partly because it seems like a weird book that people who aren't grounded in how to interpret books like this can just take it any way they want. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it does have impact. And of course, we can think of some stories like this that happen. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it does impact people's lives or, you know, it is can be very captivating for, for people like, you know, in a community, you know, how there's, you know, certain things going on. <clears throat> so I think that that's important. One in the, Towards the end of the book, it was, it was uh, interesting, kind of more on this idea of impact. Uh, and I guess more of the application of sorts, which I, I really found uh, interesting was okay let you, you go through all of this stuff you talk about you know some of the the folks that you know were kind of sensational and some of these kind of cults and you talk about the historical approach to revelation you talk about all these things and then it's like well okay well so what right so what i mean all this stuff and and there's always these questions where i thought were, was really really good which is i think a lot of people myself included will get kind of you know, hung up on the details and what does this mean and what is this for Revelation or other other books similar. But the questions you ask at the uh, closing chapters, I thought was very good, which was, so what do we say then about themes of violence, wealth, dominance, you know, service? You know, this doesn't seem to be, you know, people will kind of colloquially say, well, I, you know, I like the God of the New Testament because he's nice and warm and, you know, uh, very compassionate. Uh, God of the Old Testament is is pretty brutal, and you know I don't like that God of the Old Testament. So you know what you know, and they do all these kind of gymnastics of sorts. But this doesn't have so much good implications either. It's again wealth and dominance and violence and service and 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 uh, I thought that was interesting. I have never really kind of you know looked at it. I haven't looked at it in a long time, but looked at it in that way. So you just tell us about these themes that come out that. We have to have questions of wrestling of, well, what kind of God is this, right? What what kind of God is doing all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. It um, it it's a very troubling. I find the Book of Revelation a very troubling book now. I used to read it, you know, as a fundamentalist. I was reading it for what was going to happen soon, and I eventually realized that wasn't right. But then, for many many years, I was convinced by the more liberal Christian view, which is a historical view. That is that the uh, book of Revelation is actually a book of hope mm-hmm. uh, and that it's it's trying to give hope to people who are suffering now that it's going to work out OK in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I still get that. I understand it, but I don't think it's the right interpretation. Mm-hmm. The word hope never occurs in the book of Revelation. The love of God is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. God's compassion is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. The, the words that occur are not things like love, hope and passion. Uh, and and compassion. The words that occur are vengeance, revenge, violence, wrath, blood. Uh, these are the words that uh, that are used most frequently. And the book itself claims that it's about the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Remember, the Lamb is is Christ uh, in this book. So the way the book en- the way the book ends is that after all these disasters that Christ releases on the earth, Christ releases mm-hmm. the, uh, and these are disasters sent from heaven by God through Christ. Uh, once they all finish, and there's the final, the battle of Armageddon, where Christ destroys all the armies of the earth, then there's a final, there's a, as you said, there's a, there's going to be a thousand year period where Jesus and his martyrs will rule the earth. And after that, there's a last judgment. Um, and this last judgment, everybody who's ever lived is brought back from the dead. And those who are followers of Jesus uh, are uh, brought into this great kingdom that made up of a city that is, the city of God comes from heaven, the new Jerusalem. It is 1500 miles cube. 
<laughs> so 1500 wide uh, and high <laughs> and and it's solid gold <laughs> with, with gates of pearl and uh and so this is an amazing unbelievable place so the saints get that everyone else is thrown into a lake of burning sulfur alive it kills them but i mean they're they're basically they're tortured to death so at the end of my everyone i mean everyone except for a certain slim slim group of the followers of jesus not even all the christians make it a lot of the christians are thrown into the lake of fire too um and so i uh so at the end of my book i ask you know is this really the god portrayed in the gospels for example is this the god jesus talked about Mm-hmm. Is this is this the way Jesus imagined God? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, Jesus Jesus says things like, you know, love your enemy, <laughs> do good for those who hate you, and turn the other cheek. And he doesn't say torture them to death. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. And so, so it's a real question. Uh, this author, of course, understands himself to be a follower of Jesus, but is he a follower of Jesus that Jesus rec- would recognize as a follower of Jesus? It's a really right. good question. Yeah, now, now some people will say, you know, well, Bart, you know, I mean, you know, hell doesn't isn't a real place, you know, that's just a state of mind. I mean, there, there's there's ministers and reverends and pastors that will say this, you know, hell's not it's not a literal hell. There's not, it doesn't really exist, and yeah. and um, you know, so you know, you got to just take this with a grain of salt. You know, you got to just yeah. you know. So yeah. I mean, what do you think about people that kind? Of, I mean, that's a very in vogue kind of thing, even within liberal Christian yeah. circles about them, about that. Yeah, and there are an increasing number of evangelicals who think now that that hell doesn't really uh, exist, and I'm I'm all for that view. <laughs> I think that's a healthy view. Um, in Revelation, there's actually not a hell. There's this lake of fire, and it's not eternal torment. It looks like what happens is people get to they, you know what they get they they're brought back from the dead to be shown the error of their ways, and then they're thrown presumably screaming into this fire and it, and it destroys them for all time. Mm-hmm. And so there's not an eternal torment that's described there for, for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people do say that, um, look, it's just symbolism. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't literally God doing this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I agree with, I agree that it is symbolism, but it's very disturbing symbolism. And why do you have to have this kind of symbolism mm-hmm. for God. I mean, if you want to say, for example, suppose you wanted to show that in the end, God's going to make right everything that's wrong and all the evil will be wiped out and there'll be a good place for good people forever. Okay. Why do you need to send all of these torments against the earth where people are being, uh, are being not just killed, but tortured. I mean, when one of these one of these plagues that hits the earth, you have these creatures who come out of a bottomless pit that that look kind of like flying scorpions, and they they have the ability to sting people. This is sent from God. Mm-hmm. They can sting people so that they'll be in terrible agony, terrible, horrible pain for five months, and they're not even allowed to die to put an end to the pain. Mm. This is from God. Yeah. This is an image. What kind of image is this of God? Why does it like why don't why don't you write a book that says God's finally fed up with evil and so he sends these great apostles down and um they they preach to the nations and everybody realizes that they've sinned and they convert and they're baptized and everybody's happy forever after. Why not write that book instead of saying, you know, God wants to torture you for 5 months. Or God wants to throw you into a lake of fire. Why I mean 
so the imagery I think is really, really disturbing because your image of God is you is what you think God is like. <laughs> and if you think God is somebody who tortures his enemies and then kills them, and you want to be God-like, mm-hmm. then that means that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Well, I, I can I can hear all the counters to this, right? It's like, well, God's a God of justice, and you know, people need to have their penance, and there needs to be some retribution, all these things. And and when I've heard those arguments, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't I don't understand how that can be because you can hear on one hand, oh, he's you know he's for everybody. He's a God of forgiveness and compassion and love and all that. But, you know, you're not talking about like, oh, did you do a bad thing? You know, you're going to get, you know, some consequence for that or something. I mean, we're talking about torture and agony and burning in a lake of fire and all these things. Yeah. Why would you want to aspire to be like that? Well, Christians, you know, have to the Christians who believe in this sort of thing or Christians who believe in eternal hell mm-hmm. do do say, you know, it's because of the justice of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, I understand that I, I have a discussion of this issue in, in my book where I try to explain, you know, what that view is and why I, I think it's it's very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know. Okay, fair. But, you know, like, for example, <laughs> in one in one of these passages, um, there's a there's a Christian woman and a leader of one of the churches in the church of Thyatira in the mm-hmm. book of Revelation. And John doesn't approve of her teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, he think and he calls her Jezebel, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is a reference to a, a, a very bad queen in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Jezebel has been teaching her people in her church that it's OK to eat meat offered to idols. What that means is that, you know, you go over to somebody's house and maybe you're, they're a pagan and maybe they're just, you know, invite you to dinner. And she says, it's okay to eat the meat. You know, they might've bought it. It might've been like an animal that was sacrificed to a pagan God, but you know, they bought the meat, they give you the meat, you just eat the meal. And, you know, maybe she's telling them, okay, you know, eat the meal, talk to them about Christ. Maybe you can convert them, you know? And John thinks though, oh my God, you're eating meat offered to idols. That is, you're an idolater. You're a mm-hmm. pagan. You're, you're, that means you're gross immoral and Jezebel's teaching this. So he says Christ in Christ himself dictates a letter and says in this letter to this woman that he is going to take her and Christ is going to throw her on a bed. Sometimes that's translated hospital bed. It does not say hospital bed. He throws her on a bed and men come and have sex with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't say anything about her being willing or unwilling, but mm-hmm. This Christ throws her on the bed, has sex, and then Christ kills her children. Mm-hmm. What kind of justice is that? Right. These right. these children, mm-hmm. like they've done something to deserve being killed by Christ. Mm-hmm. So I just don't think. I think if you want to argue that God is just, this is not the view of justice that that makes sense. <laughs> no, it's it's not. And 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 I think the thing that gets a little bit frustrating is is that. You know, when when you get to really hard points or points that are difficult or where people don't have an answer or something like that, you know, is where you get the kind of, you know, resetting the goalpost. You know, you get the hermeneutical gymnastics. And and that's where you can just do this all throughout, you know, these texts if you're taking a certain, you know, way of viewing it. And this has not only, you know, with with, with the, the text itself, but this has doctrinal issues. This has just logical and philosophical issues with it and so i I guess the 
the one thing here that I, I you know, kind of one of the, the last questions here is, you know, is, is writing this book, I, I thought was really helpful for kind of a lay person to say like, yeah, this, I've heard about this. There's some, you know, kind of wild ideas in here. How do you think you, you kind of talk about the end there, but uh, of the book, but how do, how should we continue to interact or for folks that do interact with revelation that's, that's accurate, but that can also be maybe helpful or useful or, or, or fulfilling, but is done with some type of accuracy. So what is the, I guess, the, the overall application here that we can use for it? I think, I think misinterpretations of revelation have done a lot of damage yeah. to people, mm-hmm. uh, psychological damage. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of people my age in the 1970s saw this movie, uh, Thief in the Night, which is about the rapture happening and people being left behind and the horrors that would happen. I have so many friends who saw that, who or people I didn't even know tell me this. They say they, they had this horrible experience because they came home one day and nobody was home and they thought the rapture had occurred and they still have nightmares about it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it, it does it does damage. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that that way of understanding reading Revelation is not accurate to what John himself was trying to do or to say. Um, once you've got that down, then you have to ask, well, is John what John is saying? Is that something that you want to embrace? Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, conservative Christians will argue with you back and forth and they just won't accept anything you say. Mm-hmm some point they'll just say look you just have to take it on faith Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my view is that god has given you a brain if you believe in god (laughs) and that if he's given you a brain he expects you to use it Mm -hmm. and just because some church fathers in the fourth century decided that this book should be scripture doesn't mean that its view of god is one that you have to accept Mm -hmm. if you believe in god you're much better believing in the god of the gospels a God of love and mercy and compassion who forgives people um, and wants the best for people, not somebody who wants to torture people for five months or to kill children or to, to slaughter the people of earth. I mean, it just, so I, I, um, I would say, I mean, what I would say, I, look, I, I had a, um, I had a podcast interview today with somebody, a, a, a guy, a, a Christian from Ukraine mm-hmm. who's in Poland right now. Uh, and he wanted to know like how scholars interpret this because a lot of people in Ukraine are interpreting it as a prediction of what's going to happen soon. Mm. And so we had a long time. And at the end, he asked the same question. said, is there anything like from Revelation, you know, that would be helpful? And I said, the basic idea is really commendable, which is that in the end, good will triumph. Mm. Uh, God will triumph. The way John does it, I think is horrible. I think it's it's violent. It's it's contrary to the teachings of Jesus. But the basic idea that in the end, good will prevail, that can be a helpful thought in in difficult times. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think that is really, really helpful. Uh, And obviously, there's many things in the world that are going on that people are, are having lots of suffering. So some some type of hope. Uh, is is important and, and like you said, I think it's important to have a good interpretation to a- accurately get, get some interpretation. Well, the book is called Armageddon: What the Bible Really Says About the End. Uh, I'm assuming it's available everywhere. Where can people find the book? Where can people find you, uh, your books, or other things that you're uh, that you're up well, to? Well, people can just look me up. Um, so I've got a I've got two things going on. I've got a, a website that's called BartErman.com. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, on that website, I, I offer courses, uh, online courses, and I, I give lectures, and I, and all my books are listed there, um, uh, and various things like that. But I also run a blog that people nice. might be interested in. I every day for f- five days a week, I post a blog of between usually between twelve and fourteen hundred words mm-hmm. dealing with the New Testament, early Christianity. I've been doing this for ten years. Wow. I've never, never missed a week <laughs> for wow. 10 people wow. can make comments on my blog posts and I answer every question I ever get. And, um, and so there's a, there's a fee to join. Um, and I don't get a penny of it. I give all of the money to, uh, to charities, mainly dealing with hunger and homelessness. Yeah, so last year we raised over $500,000. Wow. So wow, if they just fantastic. look up the Bart Ehrman blog, which is ehrmanblog.com. Uh, they'll see it. Uh, that's great. You know, I'll put links to both of those. That's fantastic. Great. Thanks. Um, well, Bart, I mean, this was uh, so much fun. I, I really, really enjoyed it. In some ways, it felt familiar, kind of, you know, talking about some of these things. And yes. and uh, it was it was really, really uh, wonderful to, to, to get your voice on here. And uh, you really um, have uh, so much wisdom. And uh, I'm so happy that you shared it. So I, I can't say enough thanks. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed doing it. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs>